0: Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. would like to welcome all, this is the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE Podcast. And uh, we've got a longtime friend of mine here today, Charles Frazier. I'm a homie from, I don't know, shoot, we've known each other for a long time now. And uh, it's good to see you, man, as always. Happy to have you. Likewise. Yeah, good, good to have you, good to have you. So it's, uh, it's been an exciting run. I remember us talking back during the recession about how, you know, it was time for really the, I was talking about the younger generation, which included us. You know, back at that time, <laughs> you know, trying to, uh, you know, make our, our stake in the world and, and accomplish some things. And um and uh, I want to congratulate you. You've done quite well on some of your projects as of laid up in D.C. and whatnot. So congratulations on that.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And I know you got a lot coming down the pipe as well. So before we jump into that, as always, what we do is just go into a little bit of a background as to uh, how you kind of got rolling into the, the CRE space. You know, from what I understand, you pretty much came right out of school into CRE and kind of got, you know, you came out like a rocket ship, pretty much knowing exactly what you wanted to do and hit the ground running. So is, is that a safe assessment? Uh,
1: that, that, that That's pretty much it. You want me to go into that now? Yeah, please, if you don't mind. Okay, okay. Well, look, let me, uh, let me back up for our guest and just, uh, again, reintroduce myself. I'm Charles Frazier. Yeah, sorry, Charles. No, no, no. No no problem. No problem. Man- managing, uh, one of the co-managing partners with, uh, with Gateway Merchant Banking, and we are in the multifamily housing production business. We design, build, and finance uh, multifamily apartments in major MSAs in both high growth markets and in core markets. Have developed about 2,500 units of multifamily housing. We have a current pipeline of 803 units. And my partner, Terrence Murray, I uh, was on the finance side with a variety of debt and equity institutions. I Joel hit it on the head. I uh, I came out of college right on. I was in college in the commercial real estate business. I uh, I had a teacher. I grew up in Chicago. Had a teacher that said use OPM, other people's money, <laughs> and said buy property. So I got to college and uh, in the early nineties and fell into the uh, the student housing business by owning nine townhomes, which had four bedrooms and four bathrooms, and each one was renting wow. out each bed for $300. And, and the place was at 50% occupancy when I bought it. And obviously I had all my friends at, at Florida A&M in and Tallahassee and took it immediately from 50% occupancy to 100% occupancy. I got my first equity investor as my other people's money, as my parents and they were public school teachers in chicago so they had security from a pension standpoint but not significant liquidity what we did was we used a, a home equity loan on, on my first purchase when i was a sophomore which was my residential house uh, same concept lived in one bedroom rented out the other th- uh, the other two and that produced probably about twenty thousand dollars of home equity i guess it was a good time because we built the house so we, we built the house twenty thousand of equity there and I got another sixty from my parents. They had an annuity. The return on that sixty thousand was guaranteed because my brother ended up owning one of the nine townhomes, right. and so he had that put him as a resident of the state of Florida. So the, the tuition differential justified their investment, and uh, I was twenty one years old renting thirty six beds, and that led to to then what became a commercial development. I was with Tom Joyner's son, Oscar Joyner. He was uh, at Florida A&M in the business school as well. The student housing business was starting to, to take off. You had a lot of housing being built at Florida State University. Not a lot of housing being built across at Florida A&M University. And I fell into the development business at 22 years old. Wow. <laughs> 1998. Impressive. Impressive.
0: Keep going, man. The story is good. I'm sitting back
1: enjoying it. Okay. All right. All right. So, so, uh, so then, so then what, so Don Peoples was on yesterday, right? Talking about affirmation tower. And he said, you know, when you owe the bank 500, you know, $5,000, you know, they, they, they sleep and they come after you when you owe them, you know, 50 million, then all of a sudden they become your partner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, so that's effective. That's exactly what happened with falling into that, into that real estate development because of the, the architect and the civil engineer, had would then had a vested interest in us being able to complete the project. So we, after a year and a half, uh, a lot of roundabout, we we got it done. Learned how to finance it with uh, with taxes, the use of uh, taxes and bonds, mm-hmm. and created a, a pretty solid joint venture. We got our you know our capital back, made some good money. Probably created two and a half million dollars of profit, which we participated in. And then the project opened up 100% occupied, 100% occupied in 2001. Okay. That kind of led down the road of uh, starting with Historically Black Colleges. We did what we knew, including what I consider, I probably should publicize it more, but I'll I'll go to Houston next. So in Houston, Alfonso Jackson, so former Secretary of HUD, was there. He took a mentorship perspective. Uh, Texas Southern University was issued an RFP. We end up doing student housing there together. Uh, these are off-campus apartments anywhere from, from 100 units up to 200 units. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you multiply that out to get the number of beds. But effectively, they are their apartments. Mm-hmm. Then went to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I'm not going to go through each deal. We probably got, we got 13 of them. But Jackson, Mississippi, and I, I kind of like that one because we tore down a cotton seed mill. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, there was a cotton seed mill adjacent to Jackson State University, seven acres. And the campus was only 100 only 100 acres. So we we actually bought that land, contributed to the university and built apartments with the use of the bond and then gave it to them uh, on the CD. Uh, they had a uh, community development organization. Texas actually took me to the market rate side of the business. We looked at, we started at historically black colleges and then realized that there were other underserved markets. So, you know, one example would be Mississippi State. So all the capital, you know, the, the wealthier, Students were at Ole Miss, so you had new apartments going in Ole Miss. You did not have new apartments going in Mississippi State. We partnered up with actually a local group there in Atlanta, uh builder, Wood Partners, who basically was not only a builder but had access to capital as well, cheaper capital than we did. We developed 828 beds there, and and then, then with, with the same group, went down to Texas A&M Corpus Christi. You know, instead of doing just a university transaction, there were other demand drivers which include a naval base as well as a solid employment center. So so we realized ooh, why just do purpose-built student housing apartments, do market-rate apartments, did that, sold it to Camden, that was a success, and then uh, and then, uh, then, we started talking about the recession because then the recession's coming yeah. around, yeah. take a pause on development. That's kind of track record pre-recession.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let, let's pause there for a second because that's pretty exciting and we've um, been able to cover a lot of ground. One thing that I, I found uh, over the years somewhat challenging is, is sometimes getting through the the way HBCUs think and operate uh, and function when it comes to getting things done. Why do you think you've had so much success working with HBCUs? You said you've done 13 deals. No, no, no,
1: no, no. Only about only about four. Okay. Four well, transactions were, were, were with historically Black colleges and universities, but what we recognize is... You know, we're really just looking for landowners in emerging markets, right? So you got universities, you've got churches, and you got, you know, families that often are, you know, have an emotional mission kind of tied to property. And so we 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 leverage that in redeveloping that property. Uh I think that, you know, you just gotta work through things and we just we just stay going forward. Stay going forward, arrange your capital, execute well, and I I guess that's how we got them done. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, okay. So how would you say what was the, the formula to because some of our listeners might want to work with HBCUs as well, what would you say was the formula to opening up those doors and actually being able to get something accomplished? As it I, to I
1: think I think when you're dealing with anyone, whether it's an institution or, or people, I think at the at the core is trust. you know trust and performance. And so that's what it is at the base. And then the other part is 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 with institutions, we found it important to deal with leadership. And sometimes leadership isn't who you think they are. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure out who, who is leading and can make decisions. And usually you get a decision maker plus trust plus performance, and you get to a positive outcome. Okay, okay.
0: Well, that makes sense from that standpoint.
1: What do you think the opportunities are for student
0: housing development? And we're going to talk more about multifamily, but I know how you pivoted. Over the years, but uh, what example do you feel exists today for someone if they wanted to get into student housing development?
1: So, so not in the market currently around around the student side. What tends to happen is is that it is very easy to quickly overbuild a market, and so then you end up having too much supply. If if you've got a university, let's just say for example, twenty five thousand, which is a fairly large university, not a lot of them at twenty five thousand, and you have. You know, you have demand, well, okay, so one person builds 500 beds, another person builds 500 beds, and you got two or three going at the same time, and all of a sudden you go from a supply-demand balance need to oversupply, and that that makes it very hard uh, to execute. Also, the business started to institutionalize, like all real estate, as as more capital poured into the business then the participants were the ones that were better capitalized with larger capital, mm-hmm. effectively building the own for, you know, for the longer term, which mm-hmm. then changed the way you had to finance your deals. But but I think I think the better way to characterize this is back to the basic fundamentals of supply, demand, and location. Okay.
0: All right. So that that pretty much um, answers something I was going to ask you about because interesting enough. My, one of my bankers uh, came to me the other day and said, hey, we got this deal on, on our books and uh, it really needs to be sold. And, you know, we kind of went through some details and it's a student housing deal. Uh, and without getting into all the details, you know, the question in my mind was, well, do we make a run at trying to buy this thing or do we let it go? You know, and, and I'm not, a you know, really have a big background in student housing. I know that's been your space for a long time. Any initial thoughts on. You know, or would it just be the same fundamental conversation about supply and demand and everything else? Uh, well, no, it's,
1: it's, it's just math. It's, it's always comes down to uh, it always comes down to math. Mm-hmm. And and if the market, if they're underperforming on rents, if they're underperforming on, you know, expenses, you know, if they're not driving their traffic appropriately. Uh, but the one thing you never can solve for is location. So so if location is bad, then you just got to underwrite the reality of that location. And then the physical property, you know, it's almost like there was an arms race in the business where people would just build a lazy river, right? Like a resort lazy river. And so it's moving away from the fundamentals of supplying housing to uh, to supplying something else, hence our pivot, you know, call it in 2005. So we were pretty active. I think I did uh, 5,068 beds from 2000 to 2006. And then, since then, they' oh, pivoted to the market rate market rate side where you know you got sub markets with you know significant opportunity as opposed to just one university
0: okay okay, so that was really the the core reason for the pivot was just greater market opportunity
1: more yeah more more we and 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 really it was it was just I was doing what I knew right i was I was a student. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was a student developing student house, but really developing apartments that uh, that were near universities, and that set set up very well for learning how to to execute in a variety of markets. We did uh, seven different states, probably thirteen thirteen separate markets, and really learned how to go into a market, understand it, execute, and source opportunities in other markets.
0: Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So
1: let me ask this, as it relates to um,
0: the Pivot to Multifamily, would you focus more on, at, well, I know you're doing development, so I'm not going to ask about acquisition, but what about affordable versus um, market rate? Uh, where do you see those opportunities lining up these days?
1: It depends on how people define affordable, right? So affordable can be all the way on one spectrum, low income, you know, very low income, which call that 30% AMI, highly subsidized housing, public housing, et cetera. All the way up to, you know, workforce housing, and in some markets, that you know, the term affordable and workforce could be at 150 percent of AMI. I mean, you know, somebody making, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year, right? And so, I do think that the market demand back to that supply demand fundamental, as housing is is just fundamentally undersupplied because of housing production, that there's probably more unmet demand at that. 80 to 120, you know, 100 and 150 percent AMI, which tends to not say I'm going to the luxury spot, the luxury main and main locations, and building the the A plus product, but maybe it is the a few less frills and a slightly lower land basis, and not going high rise. So I, I I think that the demand is huge on that workforce side. The affordable side is really a function of government and what 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 subsidies. And the political will, both locally and federally, uh, to subsidize and, and fund that.
0: Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So quite interesting on that. Let me ask you about this also, uh, just to get your opinion on it or how you would define this. Now, I know the answer to this, but it's mainly for you know our our best and our listeners. What is really the value of these relationships? Like you said, you you look for it. Might be church. It might be a university. It might be a family that owns a, a ton of land. What's really the value
1: of that as it relates
0: to getting into a development deal uh, that you've seen over the years?
1: A large developer just said, "Bring me." It, it all it starts and ends in the development business with a site. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's just site control, and it's understanding who owns that site and what their interests are, and do you add value to their interests of that site? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in most cases, it's money. The only question is, is it a hundred percent money? or is it money plus something else? And in the development business and in neighborhoods and in communities, very often it's it's money plus something else. You could have unlimited money and still be unable to develop what you want. And so it is demonstrating an ability to solve that, understand what that something else is, and then demonstrating and communicating and then doing right the the, the execution of it. Yeah, what about JV's with current owners? Uh, we we do that, right? We 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 do that where 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 owners. You know, I, I think it's inefficient for people to sell property, pay taxes, and then go find another you know investment to put that property into. I mean, put that capital into because on the flip side of that, we go and raise capital from investors. And then those investors are making usually solid mid-teen returns, uh, you know, approaching 2x multiple on capital, you know, doubling their money probably for you know four-year, five-year investment cycle, and so so that makes for you know a compelling case to a landowner that has equity where we think it's more efficient. So we've done that a couple of times as well. In this project I'm sitting in right now, uh, virtually. Uh, it was called Trellis House in Washington, D.C. We did exactly that. Landowner had property next door to Howard University. We gave them half the capital in cash. We took the other half as contributed equity. That gave us control of the dirt. We then were able to take underutilized residential lots that the university had and helped them monetize that, combined it on a ground lease, and then worked with the community to build what would have been, you know, call it 80. Apartments, and then, you know, what we call a strategic approach of to development took that that 80 entitlement up to 319 units, and and that was done in a combination of of addressing the needs of the new community, right? So they want dog washes and lead platinum buildings, and you know, that's what we did. We made it, made that part really nice, but also we recognized the changing community. And we went in with we exceeded the inclusionary zoning, so we put we built more affordable housing because to get your zoning densities, you you have to include anywhere from, you have to do a minimum of eight percent, eight percent at eighty percent AMI. So to see that word affordable is tricky, right? Because yeah. then some people came back and said, wait a minute, yeah. it's affordable, but you know they call this inclusionary zoning affordable, but what's the rent? Well, the rent's sixteen hundred dollars instead of 2000 <laughs> uh, And so, you know, some people were like, well, that, that, that doesn't qualify for what we wanted. But long story short, we were able to structure where we gave a part of the, the excess affordable that we did, inclusionary zoning, to special use by the university so that university faculty, staff, graduate students could get first dibs on that housing side. And then we also were creative with, you know, the unfortunately, a lot of our institutions or a lot of these emerging areas are near housing projects as the way that our communities develop out a lot. And I mean, there's opportunity there because now those communities are close in. And, uh, and for a lot of reasons, infill development has a lot of demand. We recognize that people didn't just want to fish, but teach them how to fish. Like, I want to be able to stay in my community. And that came down to the, you have the income to afford the new prices in the community, right? And that was, you know, we, we moved towards skill training and just said, hey, instead of just throwing another, you know, half million dollars at, at subsidy that goes into the abyss. We dedicated that to a job training program. We partnered up with the University of District of Columbia. Ron Mason, actually the president, he was the, uh, he was the president of Jackson State when I tore down the cotton Um uh, huh? uh, And so he had faith in me at 24. So this was probably, you know, 24, I guess at that time I was probably, must have been close to 40, uh, definitely late 30. So it was, it, it, it was at least a good 10, 15 years later. But teamed up with them and, and, and for the HVAC training, effectively, you know, after a year, someone could be in a position to earn forty to $60,000 a year, which, you know, now with a two-person, two-household income, you can afford to live in this, in this new community. So that was another aspect that we did, which really brought a lot of favor with the community and embrace of a project.
0: All right, actually, that's really cool. You know, to be able to do something like that because you're not just <clears throat> building the building. People always have a, a funny view toward developers coming into their neighborhood and, you know, making all this money and leaving and going back to Florida like yourself, right? <laughs> so, but but to be able to do something creative like that is is impressive. You know, where you're giving people the skills to have a job
1: that basically can qualify them to live in the property. Yeah, they uh, yeah. They, the the, the bagger mindset, carpetbagger mindset, does creep in. I do hear that, but look, we're leaving behind three million dollars every single year in Washington D.C. between property tax income and income tax that the residents pay. There are, you know, some three hundred and fifty people that were not living in the District of Columbia that are there now. You know, the tax receipts probably went from you know under fifty thousand dollars a year to probably a million two yeah. per year. Right. And that just keeps going every year. Yeah, 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 and yeah. You know those.
0: <laughs> I, I, would, I would gladly, I would gladly trade spots. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so you let them know that hey, we we all bring the value here for the long run. So that's that's good. It's really smart. So appreciate that. Well, one thing we want to do, we want to go ahead and start uh, opening up the line to uh, take your questions. So if you do have a question, you can raise a virtual hand or uh, put your comments in the chat, and we will um, you know entertain those as well. So we look forward to that. So tell us about this as we're waiting on those those comments to come in. Was that your most recent project? I know you did a project recently in D.C. that was sold off to CIM, who uh, actually right now is doing Atlanta's largest project downtown. Was was that the same project or was that a different project?
1: No, no that was it. That was it. Oh, uh, and okay. then we sold it. We sold to CIM Group, not large pension fund manager, and they got it. It was, it was it was really good to work with them on that. I think they they understand the same development approach and story that they're doing in LA, Atlanta, and, and other places. Mm-hmm. So it's a uh, good good exit. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that that is real good. Terrence was telling us a little bit about that, and um, you know, quite an impressive deal. You know, so congratulations on that. I no, appreciate, it, appreciate, it. and
1: that, and and just to just to tell you what else that deal did, right? Was we realized, you know, it's, it's easy to get, you know, the 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 average transaction check was my first transaction was ten point one million. They got up to about twenty, twenty five, were were the deals, you know, kind of pre two thousand six, right, pre pre GFC. Whereas now on the multifamily, you know, housing production side, you know, these these deals are probably starting at forty million. And going up, you know, going up to to ninety. And so, so what we realized was that a lot of people are are catching deals, but then don't have the pre-development capital, right? So that might be two million bucks, uh, a couple million dollars of pre-development money. They a lot of times there is a lack of the the GP investment, right? So so the equity investor who writes a thirty million dollar check is going to want you to put three million bucks in, right? Yeah, yeah. And then and then the guarantees to the lender, even if you're financing it, you know, as low as 60%, you know, only going to sixty percent leverage, you know, that lender still is gonna be, you know, you're gonna have to have the balance sheet support. And what we did in the DC transaction is we paid somebody for that, right? And we realized there's a big hole in the market mm-hmm. where where what we created in Gateway Merchant Banking was was formed a partnership with our architect and our contractor. To then be able to deliver the pre-development, the GP capital, and the guarantees, so that when people do uh, have these sites, it just adds to our tool belt. Which then, as people bring us transactions, like I said, in either those high growth markets, I'll call that Nashville, Atlanta types, you know, or your core markets inside DC, LA, etc., we have the ability to execute. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: you know, that's a very powerful point, Charles, because. Biggest issue that's always faced, uh, especially with minorities, is that that co-development or that development capital, that pre-development capital. And uh, that's where many folks fall down is, you know, how do we actually get that money in the door? So the idea of being able to uh, form those relationships with those institutions, and that keeps them committed to the deal as well from the GC perspective or from an architectural perspective uh, in order to help finance the project. So, you know, appreciate you bringing that out. That's a very good point. One thing I want to ask before we start taking some of these questions, and we got a few of them that are lining up here. Why why merchant banking? Why why do you, have you defined yourself in that category? Uh, there's not a lot of firms that call themselves merchant banks. So, uh,
1: well, if you just look, if you look at the history of what merchant banks were, they were they would they would not only bank bank a transaction with other people's money, right, <laughs> or institutions' money, but then also co invest and make a principal investment alongside. So so that is that's the business. And it is not 100% in the development lane, whereas other organizations might be. We're a developer or we're an operator of uh, of housing, and uh, and that's not the case. What we're doing is we are we are matching a hole in the market supply demand, as well as uh, service, as you say, the the, the the pre-development or the GP capital investment, and matching that. And and by making that match, we end up winning.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, go ahead,
2: Christian. He had a question about your your formal title. Yes, sir. I'm uh, again. My name is Christian. I'm new into the CRE field, and you know, I know that you've done a lot of work, so congrats on that. But I just was unsure about the formal title. I'm
1: uh, managing partner.
2: Ah, okay. I understand. I understand. Again, I'm I'm new to this, so I'm just here for the learning. Okay. No problem. No problem. No, All right, right. man
1: Managing. Part- uh, you'll, you'll see. You'll see managing partner. You'll see principal. Some people, you know, different different sorts of you know titles and names with organizations. Some people still go with president. It's lots of different
3: groups.
2: Can I ask one more quick cool question? Yeah. Uh, yeah, briefly. So, go ahead. Yes, sir. Very briefly. I know that you have agents, and then you have brokers. With I guess that are with a managing partner be right above their broker. Well,
1: the, the brokers tend to go to market. Whether it's for uh, they go to market for someone who has a property they want to sell. On the commercial okay. side, and obviously the the larger brokerage shops, you know, leverage their data and relationships to to to, to provide that service. And They get paid okay. very well for it. Understood. Okay.
2: Okay. okay. I appreciate that information.
0: I right, appreciate that.
1: <clears throat> Just to add on to what he was saying,
0: uh, the broker would really be related to the, the real estate agent that, like Charles mentioned, go on the market in order to execute on a transaction. Charles, in his place, is actually doing the development more as an owner, and so he's the managing partner of that group doing that development, okay? So thank you for thank being you. here, Christian. We certainly appreciate it. Let's okay. go to Kevin right quick. Kevin
2: Williams. Hey, Joe. Good morning, and thank you for taking my, my question this morning. Right. Very interesting discussion, uh, a lot of information. Uh, Charles, I appreciate you for sharing it with us. question I got, being an HBCU grad, graduate from Prairie View A&M University, I heard you mention... Yeah, you know, some some deals and activity happening down around the Houston area. Uh, from what I can see, what I've seen, the disinvestment in around HBCUs, most important development phenomena is right next to white flight that we've seen in the in the 60s and 70s in terms of what it does and the opportunities that it's created. Would like to hear you speak a little bit more about two things. One, as capital flows into institutional capital flows into the student housing around HBCUs. Your experience with select product. So, for instance, in Prairie View, uh, they've got student housing just for students that are making 3.0 and above, which tends to attract, you know, your engineers, your STEM grads, and, and what happens there. And then also the relationship you've been able to build. You mentioned it briefly with the president of Jackson State and how that leads to more uh, development services with the university.
1: I do them in reverse order. So, so relationships and services with universities is uh, can be a very complex endeavor. I would just find a business where there is demand. You know, niche. I always look for niches where there is some unmet demand, and then you are supplying what whatever's not there. Not so much the the relationship side. The relationship side just provides an entree, right, and an opening door to supplying the unmet demand. So then back to the the disinvestment, and I'll I'll, I'll take it in a couple of pieces. Where do you live? You're in you're, Are you in Houston or?
2: No, no I'm, a, I'm in Dallas now.
1: You're in Dallas. OK, so so you know, I, was, I was trying to find a way to give you a great a, a good example. But around our institutions and communities, the reality is, is if you're going to build new housing product, it costs you the same two hundred thousand dollars to build an apartment unit absent the land. Right. Whether you build that in an emerging market or a uh, or a core market. And the only thing that enables you to do that, you know, for example, you know, this one here, uh, the the D.C. project was north of 300000 per unit. And so a lot of times our communities don't have the income to do that. You just don't have a you don't have a deep enough demand for it. So you got to balance it out. Now, Prairie View was very good in balancing that out, A, with the right partner. Uh, they have the largest REIT in the country, American Campus Communities. So that's how they kind of started their business on several, several opportunities. But also, universities are not in the housing business. They're in the education business. And so by, you know, I'm sure that they subsidize the cost of that new housing, but in subsidizing that, plus the federal subsidy of student loans, is they're able to, 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 to drive their education business, hence 3.0 and above which then gets better talent. So hope that kind of answers your questions or, or directionally. They're solving something else, not just a real estate issue. Because if I'm building a new apartment and you got to pay, you know, $1,500 a month for that for 12 months, you know, that's a pretty big check. Yeah. That's, that's what $18,000. <laughs> you have to be a pretty big check every year.
2: Yeah. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. All
1: right. Appreciate it, Kevin. Thanks
0: for being here this morning. Ira, let's go ahead and get your question. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Yes, my question is um, for Charles, do you find that a majority of your current projects are mixed-use projects, you know, with the housing and retail? And if not, what decision process encourages, like, a traditional
2: apartment, like student housing development, as opposed to the mixed-use?
1: So for mixed-use, the, the one here in D.C. was a, was a mixed-use. By code, we we have to do mixed use, and one up one of the projects where we're developing in Largo, Maryland, Largo Town Center, but it's only 1,500 square feet, which would be coffee. The best answer to that is a retail site for mixed use to work, i.e., retail combined with residential. Is it has to be a retail site first? You can't take a residential site and then try to force it to be a retail site because the retail will not survive. And retail is about visibility. It's about traffic so that then the tenant is able to make enough money and both their business and, and, and generate you know en- enough customers. So, so for us, we focus in on the multifamily investment and we only do the add in the mixed use as a you know less than 5% of the total cost, but it could have a role in making the place For example, we don't have any of this size, but if you have a Whole Foods downstairs or a Trader Joe, you have created a different place for that residential, you know, residential experience. When you have, you know, the, you know, boutique coffee shop that makes their own coffee and has a reputation and following. Those are things where you can get into the mixed use and make a place better because that is your front door that people are seeing as opposed to an an apartment or your community amenities on that first floor.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, all right. Myra, thank you for being here today and participating. We appreciate that. Uriah, what's up Uriah? Good to have you back as always. Hey, good
3: morning everyone. Mr. Frazier, thank you. Thank you for the insights. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier about the efficiencies with establishing a JV with landowners um, as it pertains to Discovering what their needs are, and in many cases, it's beyond just money. In some cases, so I'm, I'm curious to know if you can provide some pointers on how to best position a JV to a landowner, and what are some of the terms that should be considered as part of that deal to persuade them to participate as a JV partner?
1: Sure, I can go down a whole lot of roads, but I'll give you I'll give you the easiest answer. Listen, right? That's it. the The answer is listen to what they want, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's it. And then you come back with a structure that, that that after listening carefully, what they want, and they may not know what they want, right? What, what they say may not be actually what they want, you know, 100%. And so I think if you listen carefully, then you can come back and solve there and present them with a solution that makes money and market rate sense for you, right? You you know, on, on, on the capitalist side, and it also makes sense for them, as you have listened, to address their issue. And usually it comes down to money, time, and then maybe some other stuff. But usually it's money and time. Money, time, and risk. Got it. Okay. Can you okay. To that? Is that
3: good? Would you or is that also Would that also pertain to persuading both the contractors and architects to participate as partners as well? Would that be? Along the same lines, or would that be a different approach?
1: It's really, I mean, look, we're paying them, right? <laughs> so it's not like we're we're we convincing them to uh, you know to do us a favor. But but what is important is back to that demand and performance, right? So so you got to first, is there demand? I mean, after that demand, uh, is everybody going to perform? Because nobody wants to waste their time.
0: Got it. Okay. Thank you. Well, okay. All right. Thank you so much. Lynn Gray, what's happening, man? How you doing today? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Joe. And
3: thank you, Mr. Fraser, for sharing your insights this morning. My question was about your organizational chart. I'm very uh, curious to know how do you round out uh, your organization? I know on your website, it's yourself, your partner, and your legal counsel, which makes a whole lot of sense in terms of deal structure. I can imagine. But do you uh, round out your core team with folks that are in house um, that it just happened to not be on the site, or do you actually use consultants? You know, you know, folks that are involved in the day-to-day heavy lift of pre-development. You know, is it all consultants? Not. Not necessarily the architects and engineer side. I'm saying more of the development, you know, development associate, director, development, those types of activities. Do you keep those all between you and your partner and your expertise, or do you farm them out, or do you have other people that that you employ
1: on a long term basis? And uh, and Glenn, did, did we meet? We met, didn't we, in Miami? Were you at one of the real estate executive council activities?
3: Yes, we met at uh, the NAOP conference in ten, uh, uh, and then Reese had a evening uh, session. So a- yes. absolutely, good to see you again.
1: All right, same, same. So the short answer is we have a core team, and and I won't say we'll use consultants because then people, uh, you know, capital wants to see you have all this skill and 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 expertise and. And resource in house, right? And that's that's code for I need you to spec two three million dollars a year, right? In in overhead and carry costs before I go forward, right? And that and, and from a risk management standpoint, right now we have a pipeline of uh, of, of three construction starts this year. Like I said, eight hundred and three units, and we're able to manage that ourselves in the earlier parts of, uh, of pre development. To deepen your question because everyone gets around to that in terms of not, not dropping the ball. There are two pieces. One is on the architecture and the, and the construction side, it's not just an architect and an engineer. Miles, we, we're, our partners are Miles Bolton Associates there in Atlanta and uh, Clark Builders Group. They're the fifth largest GC of multifamily. But what's really key in there is that these guys have done 26 projects together. And so we're taking more of a design build approach and interaction as opposed to you pay an architect to do the plans then you pay the, uh, and then the, the, the contractor goes and bid. So they are an integral part of the team. The other part is we have, well, what, what I guess you could refer to as consultants, but what we've done is white label other shops and then have their people where they're carrying that overhead supply the, you know, the project management and construction management with the construction management to start at construction loan closing. Uh, so we have synthetically put those pieces together, as well as on the uh, as well as on the reporting, development, accounting side as well, because obviously that's you know people are trying to make sure you can you you can check all the boxes and execute. So we have we put that package together, and then that package is now available for other folks that have eighty million dollar you know projects to do, and then we can just wrap those pieces around it without uh, where we could expand it and contract based on the opportunity that's in front of us, as opposed to having to carry like I did in the early two thousands where it carried a bunch of people and, you know, you don't get the deal flow and you carry carrying people, it, it gets tough real fast.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it allows you to be hyper effective and also state lean. And it did just cross my mind. Not only did we meet at the conference, but we had dinner together and Realized we had some acquaintances from Ithaca as well. So that's right. That's right,
0: that's right. That's
3: Right <laughs> <laughs> Right on. All right. We'll talk
0: soon. Thank you, Joe. All right. Well, well, yeah, Glenn. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate you being here today. Oh man. So that was good, Charles. A lot of, a lot of good points, a lot of good points there. And, um, you know, it's always interesting to see how individuals are, are able to go from, you know, kids in college to doing big productive real estate deals, you know, Right. So that's, uh, that's where it's at. And and the challenge of having to navigate the uh, lack of liquidity, you know, even as you mentioned, you have to tap your parents early on to kind of get going, but um, at least you, you did it right and were able to build on that momentum in order to get into some other projects. So, uh, so that's a good thing. Yeah.
1: And, I, and I'll add to that. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I hey, look back, back to Glenn. So we're Alphas, and uh, Vernon Woodson Candy was uh, one of the, one of the first black architects. He actually uh, developed out, designed Madam C.J. Walker's house, right? Okay. I, I do pay attention to this stuff because I think that the built space is a large part of our community. And I think entrepreneurship, I.E. I, C.J. Walker's a, a, a core to that. So one of our current probably wealthiest entrepreneurs, you know, Robert Smith, he was clear on that capital side, right? So he went, into, he went into technology because it was the most scalable business and not capital intensive, but real estate, you know, flag capital intensive, but there are mechanisms for raising capital. And so the key becomes understanding at each stage, how do you appropriately match or go to the right pond for the right capital? There are $50,000, there are $10,000 checks, there are $100,000 checks, there are two million dollar checks, and then they're thirty million dollar checks, mm-hmm. and those are, tend to be different people that write those checks and different motivations. And so it just becomes, you know, skilled at at putting the capital together, or they can call Joe Miller. There you go. That's the easy way.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, appreciate that. But good point. I mean, that's really what it's all about, and um, you know, you've been able to do it. So I think it's a it's a great example, a great testament that. Um, you know, it's not that uh, a lot of other folks are, are smarter, they just have greater resources that sometimes uh we can't tap. But creativity coming into play, you can figure out ways to get things done. You
1: know, hey, I was gonna tell you that too. Uh so, so when we were wrapping, doing, you know, wrapping this, you know, this this box of suite of products and services around deals, a white guy says, and I said we were doing it because a lot of times black folks don't, you know, are undercapitalized, don't have the capital. He said, Hey, Charles. You know, white people don't have the capital, too, a lot of times. <laughs> and, and, so, and so I've been reminded on a number of cases, right? Even someone at the largest development shop in the country, multifamily development shop, is like, look, I, I can't go out and raise capital. You know, just, just go out and raise $5 million of, uh, of money, and, it, and it's hard. But, but by listening to the roadmap and, and identifying that, those buckets are out there, and it's just putting the pieces of the puzzle together.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think you've done a great job doing that, you know, but it is a roadmap and uh you gotta follow it. So I appreciate you bringing that out. Uh Patricia,
1: the other the it, other it, the other point I'll mention is time. That that always comes up and I think it's underappreciated. Living in Tallahassee, where I had a house with two roommates, meant that my living expenses were less than fifteen hundred dollars a month. And so on fifteen hundred dollars a month, you have time a year, two, three where if I were living in like a lot of my peers that were in New York or Washington DC, you know, or, or back home in Chicago, then I would not have had that time because those expenses are clicking much faster. And real estate takes time. And so that's 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 the other part. I think entrepreneurship period, but I think that's a big factor people need to consider and be aware of. Yeah,
0: yeah. Time and managing expenses as you alluded to earlier. So very good point there. Patricia had a question here in the box. Let's see. My question is To what extent do you work with CDFIs and leverage affordable housing programs for your development? And to what extent are you involved in affordable housing development, percentage of your projects? And what are the kinds of returns uh, do you need to see there compared to market rate development for it to make sense for your company and its mission? So, sure. a lot of information there.
1: No, uh, actually, I, I could synthesize it pretty uh, pretty effectively. So all of these, let's just use $75 million, and somebody's got to write a $25 million check. So you just solve them for the $25 million check. And on a market rate basis, people who have those checks who've raised, you know, a billion dollars, $3 billion, and their job is to is to invest those 25 million checks at a time, they are looking for... High teen returns, eighteen plus minus, and they're looking to double their money over a four-year period. The workforce housing or affordable housing investors are lower to mid team, lower to mid team. So instead of calling an eighteen, they're looking for a thirteen. So that's the difference. CDFIs work with financial institutions, and then those financial institutions become, you know, sometimes lenders, etc. We have uh, we have not. We tend to approach things on do the market rate first and then and then add the enhancement or other product. There was one transaction in Kansas City where it was already mandated that in exchange for the land, that 20 percent of the units have to be affordable, affordable meaning 50 percent AMI. And so that does qualify for the tax credits. Uh, We brought in an expert to do that. And then for one in Houston, Texas, we did capitalize on a tax abatement. But we start with underwriting on the market rate side and then back into the affordable. But I try to stay out of what I will call the affordable soup of uh, affordable housing finance, where you end up having 10 plus different sources for one deal that is not efficient in a housing production business.
0: Yeah, very good point. And just to mention, AMI, just to define our terms, is Area median income, all right, for yep. those of you who may not know. All right, so that sounds good. Patricia, hopefully that answered your – okay, she said great, thanks. So very good, very good. Well, Charles, as we kind of come to the end of our discussion today, uh, we certainly appreciate all your valuable insights and the time you spent with us. What would you say uh, Gateway Merchant Banking is going to look like in uh, five to ten years? You know, what do what you – what's your vision?
1: The vision there is we're doing three, three, four multifamily uh, market rates. Per year, and then we're doing three plus minus workforce housing per year, and we are, you know, well-oiled machine in the housing production business. Okay, I, th- I, th- I think that the, the United States and many markets, you know, excluding the cities where the population is exiting, right? I think we're going to be chronically undersupplied housing structurally for a period of time, and so I think that we will be a participant in that and creating great products and, um, you know, making investors money and. Getting, getting the built space built by us.
0: Okay. All right. Well, sounds good. That's an excellent note to end on. So we appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all your valuable insights today. Uh, next time I'm in South Florida, definitely plan on catching up with you. You know, now I your your home. So that'll be a fantastic thing. And uh, any concluding comments for our guests today as we uh, wrap up our discussion?
1: Nope. I'll just, say, uh, I'll just say supply, demand, and performance. I think that's it. You know, church yesterday was was about you know believing in and 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 not letting self doubt uh, mess you up. So I think that those are are critical pieces. You know, self self doubt can can erode and and talent that finds you know finds demand supplies it and performs it, it works. You know, you don't have to get distracted by anything else.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. So.
1: Appreciate that. All the
0: fine comments coming in the chat. We certainly appreciate that, and uh, certainly appreciate um, you guys being here today and participating in our discussion. So, Charles, again, my friend, it's been a long
1: time, but uh, good to see you as always. You never age, man. I see a couple of gray hairs. Please, but. please, please. The, 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 the hair is thinning, and uh, yes, yes, time, time is flying. Look, I, I appreciate this. I wish I wish there were more times to do it, especially in person. Really appreciate the guest questions and uh, yeah. interacting as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So this has been the uh, Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very excited to have you. We thank you again for being here and we look forward to having you with us next week as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you all. We appreciate it. Okay, everyone. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.